Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcast network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, Carrie, every once in a while, I ask you and the listener to indulge me in... Every once in a while, you ask me to indulge you? Okay, in... Um, a, a little trip into into ancient history, uh-huh. um, because it really is a scary place to be. I think this is. I think I'm well within the remit of our podcast to do stuff about Nero, Caligula, Vlad the Impaler. These are scary guys. Mm-hmm. Eh, these guys are scary, <laughs> and that is why today, Caroline, we are kicking off a two parter mm. on Hannibal. Oh, okay. So we got a little Anthony Hopkins. We got a little fava beans. Nice Chianti. Well, yeah, I was going to say the name Hannibal still can strike fear into our hearts in 2024, but I think that is more because of The Silence of the Lambs than the original Hannibal that I'm talking about today. We're not talking about Anthony Hopkins and fava beans and a nice candy and... A census taker once tried to test me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, none of that. Um, although when Thomas Harris needed a name for a brilliant monster... Mm-hmm. In 1981, when he was writing his novel, Red Dragon, uh, he was definitely thinking of the long shadow of menace, Carrie, that's been cast down through history by Hannibal Barca, the mm. man the Roman Empire feared the most, maybe in their whole history. Barca. Barca. Benjamin Barca. Yeah, B-A-R-C-A, which I think means something like thunderclap. Oh. It's pretty badass. Yeah. Um, so- and specific. So what do you know? Um, what about you... the OG Hannibal? Yeah, about Hannibal Barca. Mm, he was like a like a big guy in history. <laughs> totally big guy in history. Um, like a Genghis Khan or an Alexander on a smaller scale, scale but not like too smaller. And, uh, you know, a lot of crossing those Alps with elephants. Everybody, yep, exactly. So the, he crossed the, uh, famously crossed the Alps with a whole army uh, and some elephants to take on the Roman Empire. Um Hannibal was the Carthaginian general, you know, from the city of Carthage, who led his army across, yes, Gary, across the Alps, mm-hmm. uh, and handed Rome its greatest military disaster ever in its whole history. What country was Carthage a part of? Well, it was, uh, so there weren't really countries back then. It was, it was still very much a city-state thing, mm. and Rome controlled all of the Italian peninsula at this point, basically. Yeah, Rome was a country and... It was a, a city, pretty much. Yeah, only the people in the actual city of Rome were citizens of Rome, and everybody else was just kind of farming for them. Mm-hmm. So it was, Rome was still very much just a city. A real Guam situation. Right. So what uh, country was Carthage part of? It just was Carthage. It okay. was the, the whole country was this city, but they controlled an empire. Um, if you can picture the whole part of Africa that touches the Mediterranean Sea, that whole sort of North African coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that connects up into, or uh, there's a, a brief gap, I think, and then you've got the whole Iberian Peninsula, Spain and uh, Portugal. So they had the whole east coast of Spain and then all of that little north bit of Africa. Um, so, you know, pretty much two walls of the Mediterranean Sea, if you will. And where would Carthage be today if we were going to put it on a modern map? Uh, Tunis. Bless or, you. What? Or, or Tunisia. Uh, ah. But I think it's called Tunis now. I see. Um, yeah, so, so that right there, north tip of Africa. Mm. And, um, 
so the Carthaginians were a Semitic people. They were kind of Arab or Mesopotamian. Mm-hmm. And they were originally from this place called Phoenicia. And uh, the Phoenicians were this really great uh, sort of naval and trading power. And for some reason or another, the Carthaginians... Bye, Phoenicia. Bye, Phoenicia is what the Carthaginians said because mm-hmm. they split away. And uh, they had rolled up kind of with, you know, already all this kind of know-how around ships and trading. And they had founded their city on the North African coast and spread their tendrils all across that top of Africa, the eastern Spanish coast. And basically every island in the Mediterranean was controlled or mostly controlled by Carthage by like uh, 265 BC. Okay, so this is an African empire? Well, remember, they came from, like, the Middle East somewhere. So they came from the Middle East. They settled in what's now Africa, or was Africa, Mm -hmm. you know, the once and future Africa. And then they're they're also extending back out from Africa. Yeah, across the whole African coast and the eastern coast of what's now Spain. Um, And that's a combination of their winning battles against people and blockading people until they give up and say, okay, okay, we need food, so we'll give you whatever taxes you want. And sometimes they're just, like we do today, imposing really, really unequal trade agreements kind of at the point of a sword. In fact, that's mostly what they're doing. So basically, they came from somewhere in the Middle East, colonized this area, and now they're just kind of looking to keep doing that other places exactly or right. not even co- colonize at this point but like take over yeah exactly right and like i said meanwhile on italy on the like italian peninsula rome had spent the last couple of hundred years in a cycle of like finding reasons to beat up on their neighbors and then extending their uh you know the, the their territory their sphere of influence the place they would take taxes from uh, more and more and more and more until they had the whole peninsula of Italy, but not much else. They didn't really do building ships or anything like that. In Roman history, yeah. so put it in perspective, because it's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Julius Caesar. That's like that begins the slow decline of the Roman Empire. But like, how? Like, where is this in relation to Caesar? Just because I know that the most right now, because we just watched all of like I Claudius and and did all that. Yeah. So, so those civil wars with Caesar and Pompey are, I think, forty eight BC, mm-hmm. and he ends up wrapping all that up and then getting murdered in I want to say forty two BC. Mm-hmm. So that's Julius Caesar. So this is a little more than 200 years before that. Okay. Rome is, Rome does exist on a really long time span. So yeah, so to us, this would be like the Civil War-ish. To As to Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah. sort of. Actually a little further back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in case, listener, you aren't aware, there's like this meme going around that's like, Men are obsessed with the Roman Empire. They're always thinking about the Roman Empire. What's your Roman Empire, you know? Um, My Roman Empire, obviously, uh, Salem Witch Trials. But Sean's Roman Empire is just the Roman Empire. I have been. It is one of the the most correct stereotypes I've ever heard. I've been reading a lot of Roman Empire books recently. As I creep into my 30s. Recently? I I don't know. You were reading a book about this guy on our honeymoon, and that's... Three years ago now? As I creep into my 30s, I am increasingly more and more becoming not only a dad, but my dad. <laughs> well, every every of our dads are all World War II dads. Sometimes Civil War dads. Mm-hmm. My dad's a bit of a Civil War dad, as you uh, all might know from our Gettysburg Ghosts episode. Um, so yeah, you're, you're saying, forget that. That's too recent. We know too much. We have too much written down about those wars. Let's go further. 
yeah, basically. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, you, you listener, and my wife are all <laughs> indulging my my current kick right now. Right, and I do this every day. You talk about the Roman Empire a few times a week, at least, depending on what you're listening to. Yeah. 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 There's a lot to think about. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Uh, listen. I promise this isn't just a, this isn't a dusty history podcast. This no. is ain't it scary, baby. And it's going to get spooky. How spooky? Well, why don't you ask me about some of the, it sounds like the Rome and Carthage were pretty similar, right? Except for all the boats. Yeah. And you know, the distance and, and where they ended up settling and who they colonized or taken over at that point. Mm-hmm. Obviously some cultural differences too. They came from different places. They were ethnically a little bit different, looked a little bit different from each other. Um, and they had, they, uh, sorry, they had only taken over part of Spain in yeah, the Iberian Peninsula? The very eastern uh, uh, part. Okay. I'm not wrong, right? Portugal's on the left side. Um. Yeah, I'm, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's, yeah, the eastern coast of Spain. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at geography <laughs> and all the maps. Me either. But I'm like, wait, I've been to the westernmost point of Europe, which is in Portugal, so... That, well, that must be the outside. <laughs> well, all, all, all the maps I've been looking at recently call that Celtiberia. So, you know, oh. it's, it's a little hard. Basically, I'm just trying to figure out how related to everyone I am in this story because I'm, you know, half half Portuguese, half Italian. I'm I'm in the mix here. Well, we'll talk about Spaniards later, but it's really hard to say that they have anything ethnically to do with Spanish people today. Right. Or Iberians, Portuguese, whoever today, because you know ethnic groups just change and shift and merge together. Yeah. Uh, um. So my twenty-three and me says I have some weird strains in there. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, everybody's mixing all the time. Yeah. So uh, all of the ethnic groups they talk about in ancient literature don't exist now. So sure. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. The Romans noted a few spooky differences between themselves and the Carthaginians. Because they claimed that the Carthaginians not only practiced human sacrifice to their gods, which was very outra to the Romans. The Romans were not into, uh, that was kind of, it was what Gauls did, you know, it was very barbarian (laughs) behavior. Sure. To do human sacrifice. The Carthaginians sacrificed their own children, at least according to Roman rumors. Seems against the point of the whole thing. It seems against the point of the whole thing, and it sounds like uh, like terrible propaganda, which it's often been dismissed as over the years, kind of arguments and counter-arguments. Mm-hmm. But modern archaeologists have actually found the, like, you know, there's no other way, word for it. They're clearly altars, but there's, like, a grate for fire. And, uh, I mean, these are all over the ancient world because you'd sacrifice uh, cows and things this way, burnt offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, but near these sacrificial altars in the Carthage kind of footprint, are almost always mass graves of tiny burned bones. And they are organized into individual urns, but with one gravestone that will just say some variation on the phrase, the gods heard my voice and blessed me. Well, that's chilling. Yeah. I want that on my gravestone. Okay. <laughs> well, I think I'll have to... Like, we, I'm not going to sacrifice you, so... No, I just think it's fun. All right. Well, yeah, I... I Hashtag blessed. <laughs> Too blessed to be stressed. Um, so like I said, Carthage had snatched up basically every island in the Mediterranean except for Sicily, the land of your hey. forefathers. Um, now, don't, don't get me wrong. They had some of it. In fact, they had most of it. 
the Carthaginians, but it's a really big island. Mm-hmm. And they were sharing with the independent kingdom of Syracuse, which was... Uh, you know, Syracuse. Which was really small. Mm-hmm. So Rome, sometime in the 200s BC, rolled up and planted a city right next to Syracuse mm. and started getting very cozy with Syracuse, very aggressively cozy with Syracuse. Like, mm-hmm. hey, you're our friend, right? You don't want to get stabbed by us. Mm-hmm. You're our friend, right? Because we will we'll just take it. Otherwise, you want to be our friend? Mm-hmm. And Syracuse was their friend. And then the Romans immediately laid siege to the local Carthaginian base to help out their friends, the Syracusans. And Syracuse is like, that's not really what I was thinking. With their security, yeah. Syracuse is like, I didn't, this is a bad look. That's not what mm-hmm. I, so what followed was a 23-year-long war Aye. that swept across the whole Mediterranean and North Africa. Just initially over this little part of Sicily. Yeah, started over Sicily. I mean... <laughs> We start shit. I don't know what to tell you. You're the Helen of Troy of <laughs> islands. <laughs> you know, everyone wants a piece. Uh, the Romans, this is wild. And I breathlessly told you this yesterday and you were like, Sean, you're going to tell me during the podcast. And I said, no, we're not talking about the first Punic War during the podcast. Guess what? We're talking about the first Punic War just a little bit. So, All right. It's about to get Punic up in here. The Romans didn't, oh, the Punic, by the way, that, that's just what the Romans called the Carthaginian people. They were the Punic people. So these were what the Romans called the Punic Wars because they were all against Carthage. How many people do you think are going to misread the title of this episode initially? Oh, oh, honestly, Carrie, I'm betting on that because I have to imagine more people are going to click for the Pubic Wars. Yeah. Now, the Romans didn't have a fleet when they picked a fight with the major naval power of the Mediterranean, Mm. which is wild and ballsy. Uh, Some would say stupid. Mm -hmm. And so what the Romans did, they were really good at building shit. All of their uh, campaigns against barbarians and stuff were basically building walls and then building walls around their walls and then building bridges across things and then tearing those bridges down behind them. Love Uh, a craft. Yeah. All Roman soldiers were also like master carpenters. Mm -hmm. So they were good at building stuff, but they didn't know how to build ships. So they captured one Carthaginian ship and they reverse engineered a whole navy out of that. And theirs wasn't as good. It was like heavier. They couldn't figure out how they made the ships so light. So they were heavier and slower than the Carthaginians ships. Mm -hmm. And also naval combat at the time was all about ramming the enemy ship. Like you would have a a big sharp prow on the front of yours and you would drive right into somebody's side and their ship would sink and everybody would die. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they didn't even have cannons at this point. No, no gunpowder. Not in the West. So So you just kind of hitting each other yeah in in assassin's your ship in like assassin's creed odyssey they give you a bunch of archers and javelin men on your on your ships to give you something interesting to do Mm -hmm. but uh in real life they wouldn't have even had that because those guys bunch of bunch bumper cars at this point yes they're just playing bumper cars and the thing is the carthaginian captains are all really experienced sailors Mm -hmm. and the romans just invented boats right so they were never going to be as good at ramming as the carthaginians so the Romans, once again, mostly just good at building crap, uh, built metal drawbridges with spikes into the sides of their ships so they could just kind of pull up close, parallel park with the <laughs> Carthaginians, and then drop a drawbridge that they're now, now we're just doing a land battle, but on the water, their soldiers would just run across with swords and armor, full armor, mm-hmm. and just stab everybody up. All right. So that's, that's adapting the battlefield to, you know, what you need to be happening. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't do naval stuff, so we're just going to bring the land battle to you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, also, about halfway through the war, there was a series of storms that destroyed the whole Roman fleet. 
and they had to build another one in the middle of the war, and they had no money to do it, so just all the wealthiest Romans had to pay for it and go, I guess we'll win the war, and you'll be able to pay us back that way. I guess you can hope. And finally, the Romans, after 26 years, did win this war. A lot of, a lot of grit, a lot of determination, and the treaty... First Punic War. First Punic War. Our subject for the next two weeks is the Second Punic War, so that's, right. that's why this went fast. The treaty ending the First War is the important part. It gave all of Sicily to Rome. Carthage got to keep the islands of Corsica and Sardinia, which are nearby. But then there were rebels on Sardinia who overthrew the Carthaginian government, so Carthage had to go send some ships to reinforce their position there. Mm-hmm. And the Romans were like, oh, you're sending ships through our waters. That's an act of war. You know what? We're dying to get into war again well because just finished this new war wasn't even a, a whole war the carthaginians were just like no no what, whatever you need we'll give you whatever you need we can't do a war and yeah. the romans were like okay we'll take sardinia and corsica as well okay well this seem it seems like a little trick uh it was a little trick this is kind of what the romans did they would invent um they would invent reasons to go to war against their neighbors that seemed like the neighbor had done the aggressive thing. So it's that, kind of like a moody girlfriend just coming up with reasons to be mad. Yeah, well, it's justifying yourself into defensively conquering the entire Mediterranean Sea, mm-hmm. which is what Rome eventually does over the next couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, Carthage just lost all its islands in the Mediterranean, and it also owed a crazy, like, punitive war debt to Rome. That was the other thing you would do at the end of a war is like, and you have to pay us damages, basically a bazillion dollars in damages over the next uh, couple of years. Mm. And now they couldn't even afford to pay their own soldiers and mercenaries. And that started a revolt that had to be savagely put down over the course of like a full year. But we'll get to that in just a second. Um, with this treaty, don't you think of Germany at the end of world war one? That's exactly what I was thinking of. And that, Hmm. Uh, some things happened out of that. I don't think so. No, that, don't. that were pretty bad. I don't remember what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, Rome. I was literally going to say that. It does remind me of that. It's like Rome did an anti-reconstruction mm-hmm. on its its enemy. And, and it's kind of like what happened to Germany after the First World War. They totally humiliated the Carthaginians. And nobody felt more humiliated Maybe just like Germany, nobody felt more betrayed than the military officers uh, at the top of the Carthaginian army. And no one more than Hamilcar Barca. Hamilcar? Hamilcar. I thought we were talking about Hannibal. We'll get to Hannibal. Hannibal's not born yet. Hamilcar. Hamilcar McCabe. Yeah. Hamilcar. Little ham. Hamilcar was this crazy uh, war hero who had been left in charge of the shrinking Carthaginian force on Sicily for the last six years of the war, when things weren't looking that good. So now Carthage is broke, and they ask Hamilcar up on Sicily to negotiate peace terms with the Romans. And Hamilcar just said no. Okay. He said, no, I don't think surrender is necessary at this point. And so his second-in-command had to go do the negotiations instead. The the war was going to end at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Hamilcar did his best to retire to private life, but he was completely blamed for the mercenary war that was now taking place as all the soldiers and mercenaries who didn't get paid went into full revolt and tried to take over the government. But why was he blamed? Well, you see, toward the end of the war, the Carthaginian leaders were actually thinking, well, at least if, okay, our only hope now is to lose this war so hard, basically, 
that almost all of our soldiers die and the ones who survive, we, we just go, well, we can't pay you because you didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. If we lose the war completely, then we, we can just go, nope, not paying. But meanwhile, Hamilcar was fighting the Romans to a stalemate on Sicily. Like they hadn't lost any ground for the last six years. So they're pissed at him because he didn't throw the fight? He didn't throw his fight, and he was promising his troops pay raises the whole time to get them to keep fighting. Wow, that just sounds like corporate tactics. So now Hamilcar's old men were rising up against him, and maybe the Carthaginians put him in charge hoping he could talk them down or something. Um, but pretty early on, the rebels like slaughtered all Carthaginian prisoners they had, and then from there on out, the war was this horrible slugfest where zero prisoners were taken, and every battle ended with everyone being killed. Uh, and that was about a year and a half long. And by the end, Hamilcar was really popular because that kind of thing went over great with the Carthaginian, you know, kind of people. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't super popular with the aristocracy back in Carthage, but the people in the army were like, this guy's a badass. Do you see how many people he just killed? And so his, uh, his popularity sort of protected him from um, lawsuits against him and stuff. You, you know, listener, I'll just tell you, Julius Caesar always was dealing with lawsuits. Yeah, well, there uh, there were a few Roman generals that you've been listening about that were very popular with the military or with the people, but very unpopular with the actual government and people in power. Yeah. Um, but their popularity with the, the common folk kind of insulated them from reproach, I guess you could say. Exactly right. Now, in 237, using his popularity, Hamilcar convinced the Carthaginian Senate to fund a new army for him under his command. And he was like, yeah, I'm just going to go settle things down here in Africa. We just had a mercenary war. You know, I've got to make sure everybody's back in line. And so once the army was formed and trained, he, I guess, didn't ask anyone or tell anyone where he was going. And he just left with that whole army to go conquer Spain. Yeah. And coming along for the journey was Hamilcar's nine-year-old son, Hannibal. Ah. Hannibal, nine years old at this point, heard his father was setting off on a long journey to rebuild the glory of Carthage through war and battle. Um, And Hannibal apparently ran to his dad and begged to come along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And in one version, my favorite version of this story, Hamilcar like kind of nodded solemnly to his son and then wordlessly brings him to one of the sacrificial chambers where Carthaginian parents would burn their children alive as offerings to the gods. Kind of a you will be my offering kind of thing. He lifted the boy up and held him over the flames and demanded Hannibal swear an oath that he would never be a friend to Rome or to the Roman people. Shit, Dad. I could have done that without the fire. So he was really mad about the whole treaty thing. Okay, well, don't take it out on Hannibal. His poor little feet are probably burned. Um, In, I think, the same version of the story, the nine-year-old Hannibal... (laughs) swore, I'm presuming still suspended over the flames, swore that so soon as age will permit, I will use fire and steel to arrest the destiny of Rome. Yeah, he's saying anything. He just wants to be off of the fire. Uh, Well, whatever the motivation of Hannibal, Hamilcar wiped a manly tear from his eye, (laughs) pulled his son from the oven, and went to go pack for the trip. So the Barca's sent about conquering Celtic tribes across the whole middle and east of the Iberian Peninsula. Basically, everything that's Spain today Mm -hmm. was now Carthage. Everything that had been lost in the war with Rome, plus a ton, like triple or quadruple what they used to have in Spain. 
they now had over the course of a couple of years. And Hamilcar's plan was to pay the Romans back, nicey-nice, never miss a payment, great credit, so that the Romans never had any excuse to launch a war against them until they were ready. And then unbeknownst to Rome and to Carthage, actually, to the Carthaginian government back home, all this territory they were grabbing in Spain was going to be the piggy bank that would fund his planned invasion of Italy to get revenge for the first Punic War. Mm. Um, Hamilcar would never get to launch that invasion on Rome. He drowned to death during an attempted retreat three years later. Uh, How'd he drown? Well, supposedly, a Celtic ally had offered to pitch in when he was besieging a local town, you know, as you do when you're Hamilcar. And uh, the Celtic allies showed up to attack the Carthaginians from behind instead, so a lot of the guys were slaughtered, including Hamilcar himself, who was, I guess, drowned by a guy in a puddle or something? Or a river? I don't know. He was drowned. Man. Hannibal was 18 at the time. He was almost certainly on this battlefield, and he probably saw his father die. Hmm. He wasn't ready to take over yet. Hasdrubal the Fair was the second in command. Does everyone's name begin with an H? Hannibal's brother-in-law and probably former lover. Um, and he that was, sounds complicated. Uh, it was a complicated time. <laughs> it was sexually. It was a very complicated time. I just, I, I think dramaturgically that sounds complicated. And uh, Hasdrubal was made commander-in-chief then. But he was assassinated in 221. So that's just a couple years later. Not his brother-in-law, ex-lover. Brother-in-law, ex-lover. And I like this description from Livy. It's the first time we're in a quote from our old friend, Livy, Carrie. Ah, Liv. A barbarian whose master he had put to death murdered him in broad daylight. And when seized by the bystanders, he looked as happy as though he had escaped. Even when put to the torture, his delight at the success of his attempt mastered his pain, and his face wore a smiling expression. So Hasdrubal, not well-liked. No. We should all die doing what we love. But now a 26-year-old Hannibal was acclaimed commander-in-chief by his troops. And the men had been kind of struggling in morale under Hasdrubal, you know, really missing their old uh, leader, Hamilcar, who was going to, you know, to lead them to glory and, and the ashes of Rome and all that. Um, but Livy says Hannibal was ready to step into his shoes. No sooner had he arrived, the old soldiers fancied they saw Hamilcar in his youth given back to them. The same bright look, the same fire in his eye, the same trick of countenance and features. Never was one in the same spirit more skillful to meet opposition, to obey, or to command. Okay, so he's versatile. And he's daddy's boy. Yeah, sure. Versatile, oh, you mean like top, top, bottom. <laughs> well, he likes to obey and he likes to command. Yeah, I understand. But I don't think he did that much obeying, though. We'll get to uh, the rest of Hann Hannibal's career right here. He took another two years to consolidate his power in Spain. I mean, he just took over, right? So he uh, got control over everything he had. And um, eventually, he had taken everything for Carthage below the line. The Romans had a treaty line with Carthage that said, okay, do whatever you want in Spain. Don't take anything above this line. And also, there's a couple cities that we like that you're not allowed to <laughs> do. But, but nothing above this line. So he had taken everything up to that line except for the city of Saguntum, which was protected by a different Roman treaty. Mm -hmm. It was a Greek city, but it was yeah, friendly with Rome. And so Hannibal probably figured that attacking it was a really good way to get the Romans to declare war. And uh, he was not quite right because uh, Carthaginian forces laid siege to Saguntum and the city immediately, you know, sent word to the Romans like, we need help. 
And uh, the Romans just kind of stood back to wait and see how it played out. So, um, no war yet for Hannibal. But, uh, you know, he he loves taking a city. We know that. So, uh, let's see how it goes. Saguntum had impressive defenses. They had walls, towers, siege weapons. uh, And the Carthaginians had to kind of attack them and break these walls down um, one after the other. Hannibal in the siege was really... His men were really impressed by the way he got involved. Hands-on team player. Mm-hmm. He, he would grab the battering rams and like do the ramming with them, which wasn't normal for a commander to do. He would cheer on his guys. It wasn't, you know. He was a real William Wallace. Yeah, he was a soldier soldier. He would throw spears from the front lines or javelins rather. Um, at one point, he was actually really badly injured by a javelin. He took a javelin to the thigh and Hannibal had to be carried off the battlefield, and um, they all kind of chilled out, the Carthaginians, for a couple days and waited for him to recover before they started assaulting again. Um, The javelins the Sagantines would use, the guys defending this city, had a three-foot-long point on the end, an iron point. (sighs) And then the shaft was wood, like a broom handle, but they would rub it in tar and light it on fire before they threw it at you. Okay. So that way, I mean, all these Carthaginian soldiers have shields for the most part. You don't want a a javelin to hit anything except your shield, but now... They can go right through, though. Sometimes they would. Sometimes these are thick, wooden, heavy wooden shields. Yeah. Um, And and, and they will often catch a javelin. But if the javelin's on fire, now your shield's on fire. Mm -hmm. And you have to throw that away, and then there's probably another javelin coming right after it. You have no shield. Or there's just defenders with swords ready to stab you and stab you and stab you and stab you. Um, So it was a hard-fought siege. This was a tough thing. But Saguntum was cut off from uh, the sea by Carthaginian ships. They couldn't get any food in. Every land route was covered by the soldiers. So after just a couple of weeks, some of the people in the city would have started to starve. And the siege would last for eight months. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, there are no spoiler alert, no eyewitness accounts of people who lived in this city, uh, survive or even had a chance to be made. So, so uh, everyone was killed that lived in this city. But I, I know from other sieges, uh, the desperation people get to, you know, after within a few months, you would figure all the livestock in the city have already been slaughtered and killed mm-hmm. a few months after that pets. When do you start? Looking at, um, well, it's like the Alive story, the the soccer team. When do you start looking Jamestown. at... Jamestown. Jamestown. When do you start looking at recently deceased family members as the only and, source of and food And seeing left? them as a as a turkey leg, like in a... Oh, yeah, Bugs Bunny cartoon. cartoon, like in a robo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, you're a nice ribeye now. Yeah. Um, when Hannibal's men finally cracked the last of the Sagantine defenses, and this is... <laughs> It is almost Roman. His soldiers went to work with pickaxes and they chopped away at the underneath of the walls mm-hmm. until they just kind of tumbled down. You chip at a wall for a couple days with like a hundred guys. It's just going to come down after after a little while. And so his troops were about to enter the city. They were like working on the last wall. And one of Hannibal's guys who was hoping to get some mercy for the inhabitants asked Hannibal what his, you know, what, what terms would you give him, basically? Hannibal said that um, the city was now his. I've taken it. I'm not giving it back. But the land is still yours. You can leave the city. I'll, I'll pick a spot for you that you can build a new town on, and I won't bother you there. 
and I'll let every man, woman, and child leave the city, each with two garments. He specified two garments. I don't know why. Um, but you have to leave all of your other belongings here. They're ours. And uh, that's it. You're all free to go. Now, the people of Saguntum had balls of... Steel wasn't invented yet at this point. <laughs> uh, not Iron. modern steel. I guess they had balls of Damascus steel. Mm. And uh, Livy says, To hear this speech, the populace had little by little crowded round, and the people's council had mingled with the Senate, when on a sudden the leading men, withdrawing from the throng before an answer could be given, fetched all the gold and silver, both of state and private ownership, into the marketplace, and casting it into a fire which they had hurry, hurriedly made for this purpose, many threw themselves headlong into the same flames. Now, he did give them a chance. Mm-hmm. So, this is the... It's, it's kind of from one hell to another. The people of Saguntum have gone eight months without food reaching their city. Starvation, disease, uh, uh, whatever else is happening in a besieged city. Probably a lot of civil unrest. Probably violence in the streets. And now that's finally over, but only as soldiers rush in to, to do what, Carrie? To kill everyone. Well, Livy says, he had given orders that all the grown inhabitants be put to the sword. A cruel command, but found in the upshot to have been well nigh inevitable. For who could be spared of those who either shut themselves up with their wives and children and burned the houses over their own heads, or took arms and never gave over fighting till they died? So the people of Saguntum really desperate to not hand over their city or their goods to the Romans are uh, locking themselves in their homes with their wives and children. I should say the men of Saguntum. It's not clear the women have any choice in this. I guess I just wonder, like, if you've gone through the effort of living through this hell for eight months and then you kill yourself? Throw yourself into a fire after all your worldly possessions. It's like you've been starving for months already. You should have done this a while ago. Why are you prolonging your suffering? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not advocating for suicide here, but it seems like poor timing. You might be right, Carrie. But um, we said all the grown adults, but it was just the men, I think, who were uh, slaughtered every single one. How long do you think that takes? A while. What's the system? I mean, usually in these situations, you would have uh, your soldiers cut hands off of guys so you knew how many you had killed. You just take left hands, you know, so you can't cheat. Cut two hands off one guy. Seems like it might be a little unorganized. Um, How long do you think it takes? And is that city the worst place to be in the entire world in all of history? I could think of a few, but that's definitely one of them. Uh, The women and children of the city were... Mostly spared, the ones who hadn't been burned by their husbands and fathers in their own homes. Uh, But they were taken as slaves, and we're told Hannibal divided them up amongst his favorite officers, kind of by rank. Like, you get the most, you get to pick first. Mm -hmm. All the city's treasure that hadn't already been melted down in fires and ovens and furnaces went right into his war chest, because Hannibal had picked up a ton of Spanish and African mercenaries along his way through Iberia. And he knew really well they were going to need to get paid because he had run into that problem before. Mm-hmm. And of course, with Saguntum gone, Rome was probably going to have a what they would call a casus belli, a, a, a reason to go to war. And uh, Hannibal was probably going to get the war he wanted, the Second Punic War. 
It's the start of that war. Uh, the, the earliest horrors of that war that we're going to get into after the break, Carrie. I can't wait. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Welcome back. When last we left you, I took you as briefly as I could through the history of the First Punic War so that you could understand where Hannibal Barca came from. Hannibal is the, uh, the, the true terror, the true fear at the heart of this podcast, Carrie, because he was the Roman boogeyman. He was, for centuries after this time, the name that struck fear into the heart of any Roman. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is going to become more clear uh, in this episode, in this half, and especially in the next episode. Um, but we left off with the siege of Saguntum, which showed just how nasty Hannibal could be. And uh, after Saguntum fell, Rome wasted no time declaring war. Just a quick word here. We love scary stuff. We also love uh, people in the past being petty bitches. Well, yes, of course. And... Uh, not Livy, another Roman historian, Polybius, takes time out here in his story to call out two other historians on their earlier telling of events. Mm-hmm. And he goes, The Romans, when the news of the fall of Saguntum reached them, did not assuredly hold a debate on the question of the war, as some authors allege, <coughs> even <coughs> setting down the speeches made on both sides, a most absurd proceeding. For how could the Romans, who a year ago had announced to the Carthaginians that their entering the territory of Saguntum would be regarded as a casus belli, now, when the city itself had been taken by assault, assemble to debate whether or not to go to war? He goes on to question their sources a little bit, and then concludes, Fake news. Uh, no further criticism, indeed, of such works as those of Caraeus and Sosilus is necessary. They rank in authority, it seems to me, not with history, but with the common gossip of a barber shop. Wow. Um, and I guess this is just from the footnotes of the Polybius translation I was reading, but uh, I guess Sosilus was a guy who taught Hannibal, one of his Greek teachers. So there's some accounts of the Punic War from him. Um, and of and quote, of Caraeus, nothing is known. <laughs> so maybe Polybius was right. Maybe he wasn't shit. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, it was good to know it wasn't just me who had never heard of him. Um, but obviously war was what Hannibal was hoping for. And so now with war declared, he gathered up all of his men in a new city in Spain that he called New Carthage. Uh, it's now called Cartagena, Spain. And uh, he proceeded to tell them his plan. Hannibal had spies all over the place in Rome. And he probably had a better handle on Roman politics than he did on Carthaginian politics. So he knew that Rome had spent the last couple of decades since his dad fought them, uh, digging its heels in on those islands in the Mediterranean, and uh, also starting fights with their neighbors in the north, the very north part of Italy, kind of not the peninsula anymore, but right below the Alps. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what the Romans call Cisalpine Gaul, 
which just means Gaul on this side of the Alps. So after the last attempt by the tribal people there to push the Romans back, uh, Roman, Ro- the Roman border was now being pushed all the way to the Alps. The Romans were just like, this is all ours now. Hmm. All the way up to the mountains. Everything in Italy uh, is, is going to be us. And just kind of assuming everyone's going to be like, okay. Well, no. Walking in and punching everyone in the face as you come because you know they're not going to be cool with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant if Hannibal could just get to that area just south of the Alps, he would have a bunch of kick-ass barbarian warriors who would be happy to join the fight against Rome. Hey, enemy of my enemy. Right. They already have a reason to be angry. And his plan was to then just march down the peninsula, inspiring or intimidating uh, Rome's allies in Italy to flip two. And before long, his armies would be at Rome's gates. And he figured Rome would just have no choice but to surrender and hand all of Carthage's old islands back. Mm -hmm. Um, But the only problem was right now Hannibal was on the west side of the Alps with tens of thousands of men and horses and elephants. So they had to go over land to do this? They couldn't go by water? Uh, they could go by water, but at this point the Romans had a navy. So getting there by water without being seen, spotted, intercepted. But wouldn't they still be a better navy just because of they have so much more experience? Uh, I hate to say it. The Romans didn't invent almost anything, but they were really good at perfecting things. And Perfecting, stealing might be another word. Sure. <laughs> but by the end of the uh, Punic War, by the end of the first Punic War, they had stolen that ship technology 25 years earlier. And so their second fleet was a lot better than their first one, and their sailors had now been doing it for decades. Yeah, I'm just saying that they still, the Carthage still has more experience. Yeah, but Rome had all the islands in the Mediterranean as well, so they had sea bases. Mm. Rome had naval superiority at this point, weirdly. So he thinks the easier thing is going to be going over the Alps? He thinks the unexpected thing is going over the Alps because no one has ever marched an army that way. And most people probably figure it just wouldn't be possible. It's not, a, it's not an idea that would occur to someone. And that's why Hannibal does it. Hmm. <laughs> Whatever the reason. Hmm. He set out from New Carthage in spring 218 with 90,000 infantry. 12,000 cavalry and um, some elephants. And he fought his way through the tribes in the north of Spain. You know, just pardon me, guys. Nothing personal. Coming through here, throwing elbows. Mm -hmm. Along the way, you conquer a city here. You conquer a province there. New, new Carthage. Um, So he lost like 10 to 20,000 men on his way across uh, the Pyrenees Mountains. He left a bunch more behind to guard new cities he'd founded or conquered. Why is he bringing elephants? Well, we'll get to, we'll, we, you'll, you'll see the real value of the elephants next week when they get to face the Romans. But long story short, uh, elephants are a... I know they're like a crazy thing to see, but like, what are they going to do for you in battle? They're going to scare ho- the shit out of horses, mm-hmm. which is great. Your horses are used to the ele- elephants. They just walked across mountains with them. The Romans' horses have never seen elephants, and they will not, will not stay in formation and ride toward them. They just won't do it. They're terrified. Mm-hmm. So spooked uh, Roman horses, that's a good thing. Spooked Romans, that's a good thing. And also, the elephants are dangerous. Like, it takes a lot to kill them, and they can trample through just a lot, just a whole a whole Roman army, right? Mm-hmm. So elephants, great thing to have. 
hard thing to get to. Basically, their main thing is they're big as hell. Yeah, they're big as hell, and they're weird. Yeah. Weird and scary. For the Romans, it's like seeing actual monsters. Yeah. We know elephants are sweet and cool, but... And smart. But the Romans don't know that. I think they would be even more scared if they knew they were smart. Yeah, remember that, like, the Greek Cyclops legend almost definitely comes from finding elephant skulls. Right. Because that hole where their trunk comes out just looks like a big old eye. Yeah. Um... And they got these big fangs. Yeah, so nobody really understood what was what was going on with, with elephants. Elephants were a weird, spooky, alien thing. No, they're still crazy, but I like them. Um, so anyway, he leaves some guys behind. He loses some guys. By the time they started the crossing of the Alps, modern estimates guess this number has been put a bunch of different places. Some ancient historians said that he started crossing the Alps with 70,000 guys. Mm-hmm. But modern estimates are like 38,000 men. That's still a lot less than the 90 plus 12,000 cavalry. Yeah, well again, he like 10 to 20,000 guys died fighting tribes. There's yeah. no part of this that's not fighting. So well, it's just by the time you even get to Italy, you have so much smaller of an army. Yeah. Yeah, people are Are just, you going to have anyone left when you get through? Well, he's now got 38,000 who he has to get across the mountains. Mm-hmm. It was already getting late in the year. It was September or October by the time they reached the Alps. And like elephants aren't made to cross mountains. No. The elephants have never seen the mountains. They've never been in a cold climate. Bigger than the elephants. Now the elephants are spooked. Hannibal doesn't... Hannibal's never been to the mountains. He doesn't know if the elephants will be able to eat anything up there. Okay. It was probably... It's a big gamble. Big gamble. Probably later later in the year than he was intending to get there, too. Like October? That's pretty late. It, you'd almost maybe consider just waiting until the springtime to make the crossing. It was going to take at the, about two weeks, they figured, to do this. But they had just had a close call with a Roman army that they really weren't expecting to be on this side of the Alps. The Romans had uh, done the sensible thing and sailed an army over, over to uh, go looking for Hannibal, you know. And they found him. They almost uh, got him. Hannibal managed to do a, a slick little river crossing. I, I won't get into the story. That doesn't matter. But uh, he, the point is he thought they had lost the surprise effect already. And if they waited till next spring, the Romans are just going to be waiting mm-hmm. at the bottom of the mountains. Um, the Romans, meanwhile, by the way, would not be waiting at the bottom of the mountains because they figured, I mean, it kind of looked like he was heading toward the Alps, but he can't, he can't be planning to do that. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. So the Romans just went into winter quarters. Okay. Now, the majority of Hannibal's troops were uh, from North Africa and from the plains of South Spain, which um, is, as you know, Carrie, uh, the plain where the rain mainly falls. Mm-hmm. The point is... But not the snow. <laughs> but no, no, certainly not the snow. And that's my point. None of them had spent an autumn north of Madrid, probably. The cold of the north of Spain was a rude surprise. Mm-hmm. As they moved through the Pyrenees in the uh, autumn. But it was absolutely brutal by the time they reached the foothills of the Alps. And there were no roads through the mountains. No. There were only beaten tracks and kind of passes people would tell you about. There were uh, low rises in between mountains. And um, sort of routes that had been beaten by many hundreds and thousands of feet over the years. Nothing like a road. So keeping a column... Of almost 40,000 soldiers. Uh, and horses and elephants. That's right. Keeping them fed and organized would have been hard 
if they were on flat ground. Mm-hmm. And in this journey, most of the time they have steep cliffs on one side of them and um, an uncomfortably thin file to march on. There were times, well, there were actually times when it wasn't wide enough for the elephants to cross and the soldiers would have to spend time building up the bank to give the elephants enough space to walk on. They're not like mountain yaks. Like, I feel like they're not, they're a clumsy creature. Yeah, they sure <laughs> seem like it. I don't know. Like, I don't understand. Uh, did any make it across? We're told by Hannibal, we're told that most of them did. We actually, we don't know how many, nobody knows what he had when he started the crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he claimed that he started the crossing with 37 elephants and he reached Italy That's with... That's not many elephants. No, it's not. And he says he reached Italy with most of them. I feel like 30 elephants aren't worth it. Well, the for Rome- the amount of horses that are going to get spooked. Carrie, it, they were worth it. Okay. The Romans... I know it's the big thing, but... They hated these elephants. But, it, <laughs> I, but I, it definitely was a pain in the ass getting them across the mountains. And it would have been if it was a peaceful crossing. And it wasn't. Because, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, Polybius says... The uh, local tribes around the Rhone River were really friendly when Hannibal's cavalry had like a big open plain to charge at them across. But once they were enclosed in tight sort of mountain passes, those same guys started coming up behind them and launching ambushes, killing and capturing the men at night. Um, You know, they would run off with pack animals. Um, They would stand on the cliffs above you and throw rocks down, smash men on the head. Um, On their so doing and attacking at several different points... Polybius says the Carthaginians suffered great loss chiefly in horse and sumpter mules not so much as the, at the hands of the barbarians as owing to the ground for the road up the pass being not only too narrow and uneven but precipitous the least movement or disturbance caused many of the animals to be pushed over the precipice with their packs it was chiefly the horses upon being wounded which caused the disturbance some of them terrified by the pain turning and meeting the pack animals and others rushing on ahead and pushing aside in the narrow path everything that came in their way, thus creating a general confusion. Yes. So you are marching up this path. You're pressed in uh, on both sides by, by uh, other soldiers. You've been marching for hours. It's colder than you've ever felt before. You're on a goddamn mountain. Someone starts chucking boulders from above you, and then suddenly horses are breaking and running back toward the, the, toward the back of your army. There's elephants in the mix for some fucking reason. It, um, now, the good news, you know how cold air is. You probably can't smell the horses and the elephants as, as well up here. <laughs> it seems like cold comfort, literally, Sean. Literally cold comfort. Um, so finally, Hannibal dealt with this by taking some of his guys, setting up an ambush of his own for the barbarians, and um, he, quote, put them all to the sword, Polybius tells us, his favorite thing. And then he sniffed out their town nearby, and he burned that down, and he killed some more guys, and he got some sweet cows out of the deal. So that fed his army for, it said, two days, two <laughs> days worth of cows. Um, and after that, the locals were a little more neighborly for a while, for at least a few days, because uh, they were terrified mm-hmm. of Hannibal. But the crossing had only begun. So and a couple days passed with no incident except for the, the terrible freezing cold and the steep path and people occasionally tumbling off the edge to their deaths. But near the summit, another mountain tribe came out and uh, approached the Carthaginians with like peace offerings with wreaths and uh, olive branches, literally olive branches. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, we're terrified of you because we heard what you did to those guys down the hill. The whole burning the town thing and everything. 
And uh, so we just wanted to give you some horses and some guys, some hostages, as like a token of friendship. And so Hannibal was like, whatever. I guess, sure. Uh, I didn't need that from you, but uh, if it'll get me on my way. And so then two days later, he's, he's got all these extra horses and a couple of uh, barbarians as prisoners. And then his whole army is crossing this really precipitous gorge. It was a very narrow path and a very steep like hill up on their left. Mm-hmm. And then a gorge to their right, like, a, like just a cliff. Mm-hmm. And once they were halfway across the same group that had showed up with the gifts a couple days before suddenly charged down this hill, uh, rolling boulders and throwing rocks from the uh, sort of cliffs above as they did. Ah, a twist. A twist. A double cross. Mm -hmm. But why? Why give them the the hostages first? I assume the hostages probably like sprang into action at this point. They're prisoners. They're just going to die. Yeah, it seems like... All of the people are just going to die. Well, that's definitely true. Uh, but for now, this is the tribesmen are rolling rocks. They're throwing heavy stones. At this point, only the baggage train and the horses were across because Hannibal had actually kind of suspected something fishy was up. And he had kept all his uh, badass infantry at the back. They crossed the chasm last. So they were able to kind of pour in and fight off these barbarians for a whole night. Guys kept charging down this hill and Hannibal had to kind of duck behind a big rock as mm-hmm. you know, they were, they're being pelted with stones uh, as the sort of baggage train and the, the cavalry guys and the elephants uh, got out of the way and, and, and headed up the pass a little bit. Now, why are these people at all loyal to Rome? They're, they don't even have rights oh, under Rome. These people aren't. And this isn't Roman territory. These people are just like, this is our territory. Well, they're just walking through it at this point. Yeah, we don't like that. Okay. And so when people, and also what you do when people walk through your territory. They were just going to keep walking. Yeah, but why don't we take their stuff and take them as slaves? They've got all these pack animals. We love horses, you know? I guess. These elephants look weird. (laughs) Um, Speaking of the elephants, by the way, that was the last like organized assault they faced during the whole crossing, which is great. But they would still be attacked by little small groups of tribesmen. Who would do the like chucking rocks from the cliffs thing, and they would show up at night and run off with some pack animals. They would uh, kill people or take prisoners um, when they could catch them in ambushes. And Polybius said, in these circumstances, the elephants were of the greatest service to him, for the enemy never dared to approach that part of the column in which these animals were, being terrified by the strangeness of their appearance. So, you know, they haven't tested it on like, quote, civilized Romans yet, but these barbarians up in the mountains, friggin' terrified of the elephants. They hate it. Okay. Around day eight, they would have started seeing snow, and for many of the soldiers, it'd be the first snow they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. They probably they were not dressed for the cold. Yeah. And by the time they reached the peak, there would be snow everywhere because this high up, it never got warm enough to melt. Mm-hmm. Even in the spring. <laughs> They're the Alps. Yeah. It's kind of their thing. Yeah, no, I, I know. No, I know. <laughs> but these guys didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannibal and his army finally reached the summit after nine days of marching with Italy below them. They sat down to camp for two whole days to like kind of get their strength back a little bit. Um, let the survivors recover as best they could. Not that they had, they were running out of food because there was nothing to harvest up here, but let people gain their strength back and to let stragglers catch up because it was 
really hard to stay organized and they weren't sure how many people had just gotten lost and would never come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few men, a few stragglers did come in, but more um, pack mules and horses found their way to the camp later than guys. Most of the guys who had gotten lost were just lost. Mm. So Hannibal's obviously having morale problems, but at this point he could at least point out the, uh, the valley beyond the Po River you know, what the Romans called Gaul and remind them that the men there hated Rome and Romans as much as they did. Mm-hmm. And beyond that was Rome herself, ripe for the taking. Mm. They would encounter much, much, much less armed resistance on the way down the mountains. But I think that's arguably because nobody lived in these parts of the mountains because they sucked. Okay. And Polybius says Hannibal lost almost as many men on the way down even though there weren't any battles going on because the going was actually that much harder. Well, if you if you and, and our listeners remember from the Everest episode, and obviously that's a much higher mountain, but if you're not used to uh, those kinds of heights, you're going to be feeling sick. People are probably experiencing snow blindness and they're not used to dealing with snow at all. People are freezing. People are... are Altitude sickness and starving, and yeah, it makes sense that that people are just going to be dying of more natural causes. And even as they descended the slopes, snow was falling now on these steep paths, and they've still got tens of thousands of men, thousands of horses, and dozens of elephants Mm -hmm. picking their way down these steep slopes. Um, Polybius says... The descending path was very narrow and steep, and as both men and beasts could not tell on what they were treading owing to the snow, all that stepped wide of the path or stumbled were dashed down the precipice. Mm, Poor elephants. So you don't even know if the ground you're stepping on is going to be ground. Sure. And you're in a forced march, essentially. I mean, I don't think Hannibal's waiting for you to gingerly test the step in front of you. Mm -hmm. Every step is a terror for these men. At one point, the track was totally impassable because there were a series of avalanches that had rolled through. And so the men found that they could like kind of pack down the snow a little bit and then slide across on their knees uh, as long as they had a little bit of a slope to it. And that was an okay for way for the men to go. But when they tried to bring the elephants across this, um, this avalanche section, they kind of started to climb up onto the snow and then, of course, immediately broke through the crust and uh, sank in up to their chests. And after that, the elephants couldn't move at all. So what did they do? Well, they had to dig out the elephants. Oh, Jesus, got these freaking elephants. And then they had to take the snow and build up. Remember before they had like built up paths to make uh, some tracks wider for the elephants to walk on? Mm-hmm. Now they had to spend basically a whole day and uh, it says specifically these were his Libyan infantry. So these poor guys are from from Africa. I mean, they're not used to the weather. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And they are put... There's to- no North Faces and, you know, nope. Patagonias around. And they're being put to work uh, now, like, pack, basically making an elephant highway. They had to pack the snow down hard enough so the elephants could actually walk on it. No wonder we were always talking about the elephants, because, like, they really went through hell to get, like, 30 elephants across this mountain. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think it was... I'm sorry. It was a day to get the elephants dug out, I think, because it took three days to build the pass up enough. <laughs> God. To get the elephants to walk across it. Hannibal's like, I'm never letting anyone forget I brought elephants. No, like Not I, after all of this. Like I said, 37 is the number we have. And what Hannibal said was that he had the survivors of the 37 that had started out. 
But I, I get the sense from the Roman reports that he does have dozens of elephants still. So he, he didn't lose that many, is my point. Um, he had most of them, but they were all at the point of starvation mm-hmm. after a full week in like the high mountains where nothing really grew. Uh, I don't think any of them actually died of starvation, though, because they got to the lower slopes of the mountains where things uh, started growing again. But but the elephants were apparently very skinny. Oh, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, pretty pretty gross, floppy elephants. Uh, the army finally stepped onto the level plains of what's now Piedmont, Italy, on day 15. And there are arguments about how many men Hannibal brought into the Alps. I told you that. 70,000, 38,000. Uh, but we know how many he brought down out of the Alps because he himself later had a, a steely or steel, stell, I don't know, steely, I think they're called. The pointy, the, the pointy sticks, like an obelisk mm-hmm. uh, cast that commemorates his crossing, like a little monument to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the steely lists the forces that survived his crossing. So we said about 38,000 guys before. Mm-hmm. And the survivors were 20,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and again, quote, most of those 37 <laughs> elephants. Uh, most of the elephants. We know some of them died for sure. We know for sure that's, that most of them made it. That's all we know. Okay. But 12,000 men then, and God knows how many horses, died getting those guys across the mountains. Uh, it's probably a third of his men had tumbled over cliffs, frozen in the high passes, or been stabbed, crushed, or strangled by the locals. Again, estimates differ. But now, the Carthaginians were in the hills of Gaul, and it was November. The Romans were basically asleep for the winter, and Hannibal got into his old tricks. He just started punching the local tribes in the face until he could get the legions back out of their... Uh, back out of their beds, you know, rub the sleep out of their eyes and pull them into a cavalry battle. This is the smallest battle we're going to talk about. Next week, there's going to be a couple more battles. Um, And I promise, Carrie, I'm not going to get lost in troop movements and all this bullshit. (laughs) Said every Roman to his wife. It's not going to be all double envelopments. Not too many of them. There's a very important double envelopment next week, Carrie. I can't wait. I don't know if we can talk about that on the podcast. I already see Carrie's eyes glazing over. <laughs> this is not a military strategy podcast. Uh, this is... No? This is a horror podcast, right? Yeah, we talk about people being stinky and eating each other. And I submit to you that an ancient battlefield is a truly horrifying place to be. Certainly don't want to be there. So I think understanding just a little about how these battles flowed is important so you can really picture it. So, you had Hannibal and the Roman general. He was a consul named Publius Scipio. A little poob. If you're not up, a little pube. If you're not up on um, Roman politics, the consul... No. But, <laughs> if you're not up on Roman politics from two millennia ago. Well, the consul was like a president, but there were two of them and they were only elected for a year and they led armies in, in battle. Mm-hmm. So, not very much like a president, but kind of like... He was the guy in charge. Commander in chief. Sure. Uh, so Hannibal and Scipio both maneuvered their forces around each other and scouted and spied. And then they both sent out part of their main force to go do a battle. It's what you did back then. Sure. Um, so Hannibal squared up with just his cavalry. Remember, there was about 6,000 dudes. They were all from North Africa. 
in the text, they, they, they most, most of them get called Libyans all the time. The Libyans. But Libya was just kind of what they called the whole of yeah. North Africa. So some of these were big armored, don't fuck with me guys with big spears. Mm-hmm. They're called heavy cavalry. I'm, I'm talking about spears that make those three foot long uh, spiked javelins we were talking about before look like uh, toys. Oh, gosh. Look like a Happy Meal toy, babe. Ew. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis Miller. And uh, so those were the heavy cavalry. And then some of the guys were like really fast moving, light or no armor, and they would throw javelins. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the, not flaming javelins, but kind of like the things we were talking about before. Um, so you had your fast guys and your heavy guys. Now, across the field, the Romans had 3,600 cavalry. Some of them were Romans. Some of them were Gauls. Um, And the Gauls would ride two guys to a horse, I guess. One guy would uh, uh, ride bitch, as the bikers used to say. And uh, just kind of, you know, I picture him with his arms around the guy's waist. And he would throw javelins from the back of the horse while the other guy used a big spear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Scipio also had a couple thousand velites or velites. I never know with with Latin. (laughs) But these were poor Roman citizens who uh, served in the infantry, but as javelin throwers. So now, they, what would guarantee that the Gauls didn't just turn on the Romans and join Carthage? Uh, because if you did that, then they'd just, like kill your family. I, they'd burn. Go, they knew what village you were from, and they'd burn it down. And this, it, it happened, and that's what the Romans would do. But wasn't that going to happen if Carthage won anyway? What do you mean? Wasn't Carthage just going to come in and kill everyone anyway? No, Carthage was saying basically, hey, if you just surrender immediately and fight with us against the Romans, then it's all gravy, baby. Mm. But Carthage will leave eventually, and then the Romans are not going to be kind to you. So, Okay. Um, yeah. So the Velites were like skirmishers. What does that mean, Sean? Uh, well, a lot of people in an ancient army were there to just sling stones or throw javelins. Maybe didn't even have a sword. Just ranged shit. Sometimes shoot arrows, maybe. I don't think the Romans were big on arrows. But these guys would run out ahead of the two armies and just throw shit at each other. Okay. And a lot of times they wouldn't get close enough to the other army to actually hit anyone there. So you would just have minutes or sometimes hours of both armies just standing totally still, except for these skirmishers kind of teasing each other with javelins. Uh, Why? What, what, What purpose did this serve? Ah, seems fun. Well, back to the horror. I think it all makes a lot more sense if you remember that everyone on the battlefield, both of the commanders, but definitely every man sitting on a horse and every man holding a javelin and every man standing in an infantry line is fucking terrified. They just don't want to, they don't want to kill anyone and they really don't want to get killed. And so I think the army's just going to stand back until the skirmishers appear to do something decisive or until their commanders tell them they have to go do something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these skirmish clashes would be, yeah, a good chunk of the afternoon before the two armies slowly actually advanced and kind of had their lines clash. So at Ticinus, at the Battle of Ticinus, which is the river that was nearby, Scipio expected one of these long javelin skirmishes, and he thought he was being really clever. So he put all of his velites, his infantry guys, behind and in between his Gaulish cavalry, the the two-to-a-horse French guys. And so when the enemy came in sight, the javelin men stepped out from in between the horses and ran forward to, to engage with their pointy pointies. Now they've got ranged weapons. The heavy cavalry on the other side has none. What are you going to do, guys? Huh? Dink, dink, dink. 
But Hannibal had planned for exactly this. Mm. And Hannibal had decided there wasn't going to be a skirmish clash or a javelin battle this time. So the Carthaginian light cavalry, the skirmishy guys, were on the wings and held back. While Hannibal sent his heavy cavalry, the big melee, don't fuck with me guys, right out front. And that's a bold play because what? They're going to get hit by javelins, right? No. Because the Roman javelin throwers were charging out to do their thing. They saw these big, scary, mounted, don't fuck with me spearmen riding toward them, and none of them threw their javelins. They just panicked, kind of pissed their pants, and turned and ran back toward their line with the charging cavalry <laughs> behind them. So meanwhile, now you've got a bunch of Gaul- Gallic cavalry, right? A bunch of Gauls sitting two guys to a horse, guys ready to throw his javelin. Mm-hmm. There's Italian cavalry behind them. They have to go charge to meet the Carthaginian cavalry that's charging toward them now. Mm -hmm. But they have their own guys fleeing back toward them. So now all the Roman and and Gallic cavalry had to sort of daintily walk their horses. You're trying not to trample your own guys because you only have a certain amount of guys. Yes. And so now Hannibal had exactly what he wanted because these uh, Roman horses are, are daintily trotting forward and the Carthaginians just smash into them. And now it's a mess. Mm-hmm. And these, when, when battles start with cavalry, I, when it starts with a cavalry clash, I think then it's just a, just a nightmare after that. Apparently in the Punic Wars, in both Punic Wars, a lot of guys would get off their horses immediately after the cavalry kind of hit each other. Mm-hmm. And so now you've just got horses bucking around. Um, and guys just in a melee. There's no organized lines. There's just there's just people stabbing each other um, in a mess. Lots of spears, lots of javelins, lots of swords. Uh, it's a tangle of limbs. There's men and animals dying everywhere. You can smell blood. A couple dozen elephants running around. You can smell shit. You can smell all of that mixing with mud and sweat. And the Gauls actually, as I said, sometimes guys would get off their horses. The Gauls would always get off their horses. The, the guys who would, the second guy on the horse with the javelins, mm-hmm. he would just immediately get off. And well, now he, I think he had something to prove. And now his job was just to stab horses in the belly and like rip Carthaginians down from their saddles and stuff like that. So maybe, maybe they just weren't that good at mounted combat yet. Like as civilization. Maybe they hadn't figured Rome? it out. No, just everyone. You know what I mean? Maybe it was just like, well, we don't know what to do once we get close to each other. So they just get off and start stabbing each other mm-hmm. on foot like they're used to. Um, so anyway, the Roman Velites had pulled themselves back together from panicking when the horses were charging at them. And so they, and they did outnumber Hannibal's heavy cavalry, right? So once those guys turned back and started fighting with their little javelins, it started to look like they might turn the tide. But that's when Hannibal's light cavalry, which hadn't done anything yet, Swept in from both sides, pelting the uh, Romans with javelins. The Velites are just citizens, and they know that people riding up on horses from behind, throwing javelins at you, is what gets you killed. Mm-hmm. So they all just ran. Mm-hmm. I would probably do that too if I was forced to be in a battle that looked like a nightmare. <laughs> The Roman, like, reserve cavalry got themselves organized around the uh, grievously wounded, at this point, Publius Scipio. It's like the president is on the battlefield and he's he's basically dying as uh, all of the allied cavalry, all the Gauls started to rout. That's when you totally lose your formation. You start just turning and running mm-hmm. and routes. People don't die very much in an ancient battle. 
everyone's kind of half-hearted. Again, nobody really probably wants to kill people that badly. Mm-hmm. Um, when people are behind their lines, they're kind of... And even ha- more so, they don't want to be killed. And yes. you have to be in the shit to get killed, usually. So you're sort of half-heartedly poking spears from behind shield lines and stuff. When a lot of people died is once your line broke and you started to run. Right. Now the enemy gets the bloodlust thing going and they charge into your back and everyone gets stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm. And that's when you see crazy, you know... Half of an army gets killed. 75% of an army gets killed. You, you, tens and tens of thousands of casualties. There aren't that many guys on the field in this battle, but we will see those kinds of things happen next week for sure. Um, it's like a contagion once one guy starts to break and loses that formation. Uh, everybody's gone. Everybody's getting stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm. So casualties were brutal among the poor Roman citizens who were fleeing for their lives and the Gaul allies who were wondering why they'd ever gotten in bed with the Romans in the first place. Scipio's 16-year-old son, whose name was also Publius Scipio. Remember him. He's the important Publius Scipio, and he'll come back next week in a big way. Uh, He apparently cut his way through the fighting with a small group and rescued his father in like a super heroic move and escorted him to safety. And the Romans tucked their tails and fled back south across the Ticinus, burning the bridge that they had built to cross it in the first place. And after that, new allies flocked to Hannibal. We don't know sure. how many, I mean, we don't know how many soldiers he lost in the Battle of Ticinus. Probably not many. Mm-hmm. But we know he added almost 20,000 more Gauls to his uh, army. That's what, I, that's what I said would happen. Before he started proceeding down the peninsula. Um, and as kind of a reverse signing on bonus... Many of the warriors defecting from Rome to Carthage brought the heads of the soldiers from the forts they'd been manning with them. Oof. Threw them at Hannibal's feet as they uh, pledged their allegiance. The Romans were not used to losing. They were not used to this kind of a shock. Mm-hmm. But their greatest defeats were still to come. And next week, the true nightmare begins. Can't wait. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Let's take a trip to the Bazaar Bazaar. Oh, it's been so long. Oh, this is a, a totally new display. I like what they've done. Do you see how they made the soda boxes look like a, uh, a seasonal design? Yes, it's very nice. I love the Bazaar Bazaar. 
Um, and more relevant than I actually would have realized this week. After 2,000 years, an ancient scroll badly damaged in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, known for leaving behind the archaeological site of Pompeii in Italy, has finally been deciphered by three college students with the assistance of AI. Oh, Carrie, you're taking us to Rome today, too. In a way, in a way. Now, Sean, as you well remember, we had the privilege of actually visiting the ruins of Pompeii last summer and walking through the town. Yes, our listeners are still suffering for it with <laughs> new Roman history episodes. Uh, this town was once buried in ashes after the eruption of Vesuvius, a nearby volcano. We'll definitely be covering this event on the show more than likely this year even, but probably in a while, so you're not getting too much ancient Rome all at once. But Pompeii has always been a fascination of mine, and any news relating to the historical eruption of Vesuvius always catches my little eye. So this story comes from Vice, which reported this week that a super team of three university students, Yusef Nadir, Luke Ferrator, and Julian Schillinger, created a series of machine learning algorithms to help communicate the writings on a papyrus scroll that was found in Herculaneum, which was the other major city destroyed in the Vesuvius eruption along with Pompeii and its nearby towns. The papyrus was part of a library of scrolls in Naples, Italy, that was buried during the eruption in 79 AD. Because of the effects of the eruption, the scroll was carbonized and made impossible to open without completely destroying the piece. The student's accomplishment was part of the Vesuvius Challenge, which was a contest created in March 2023 by United States tech executive Nat Friedman, entrepreneur Daniel Gross, and computer scientist Brent Seals to try and discover a way to read these carbonized scrolls, basically incentivizing all of the best young minds to try and figure out this conundrum. Yeah, this is where you, uh, I've heard of the Vesuvius Challenge, this is where you cast yourself in plaster on TikTok to raise money for ALS or something? <laughs> something like that. Uh, the algorithm, the team's AI algorithm basically found a way to digitally unfurl the scroll using 3D scan data provided by the contest organizers. The algorithm then spliced together different parts of the parchment in a process called segmentation and then detected the traces of ink remaining on the parchment to read it. Computer science major Ferritor and robotics student Schillinger worked on the segmentation, piecing together large chunks of the papyri from different scrolls and both validating previous writings and revealing totally new and not before seen segments from other parts of the scroll, especially part of the outermost wrap, which was the most damage, obviously, and near impossible to read without causing further damage. I definitely understood every bit of that. <laughs> What did it say? Well, we're getting there. But first, we got to give PhD student Nadir his flowers for developing the ink detection model, which correctly revealed 11 columns of text and more than 2,000 characters of ancient writing. Pretty much hadn't been read since the eruption of Vesuvius. The contest had required four passages of 140 characters to be deciphered to win. The trio, in this case, far out far exceeded these requirements. The team received more than a million dollars in total prizes, many contributed by donors, and all three of the winners were previously involved in Vesuvius studies and assembled into a kind of archaeological AI Avengers to accomplish this <laughs> ultimate feat. Yeah, but what about the papyrus? Was it a sales receipt? What was it? 
According to the contest scholars, here's what the scroll basically reveals. Quote, the general subject of the text is pleasure, which properly understood is the highest good in Epicurean philosophy. In these two snippets from two consecutive columns of the scroll, the author is concerned with whether and how the availability of goods such as food can affect the pleasure which they provide. Do things that are available in lesser quantities afford more pleasure than those available in abundance? So Basically, like, is a rare uh, drink better than a drink that you can get anywhere, even so, though you like it? So it was an op-ed. Kind of. Our author thinks not. As, too, in the case of food, we do not right away believe things that are scarce to be abundantly, to be absolutely more pleasant than those which are abundant. However, is it easier for us to naturally do without things that are plentiful? Such questions will be considered frequently, he says. <laughs> Since this is the end of a scroll, this phrasing may suggest that more is coming in subsequent books of the same work, kind yes. of like a TBC. At the beginning of the first text, a certain Xenophantos is mentioned, perhaps the same man, presumably a musician, also mentioned by Philodemus in his work on music. Scholars might call it a philosophical treatise, but it seems familiar to us, and we can't escape the feeling that the first text we've uncovered is a 2,000-year-old blog post about how to enjoy life. Yeah, instead of op-ed, I was going to say think piece that's <laughs> yeah. really closer. And isn't it incredible? Thoughts on life by someone living more than two millennia ago, lost to time until right now. Even if it's the equivalent of one of those recipe blogs that you find online that tell the author's whole friggin' life story while you're just trying to find a good way to make scones, it's still pretty cool. Yeah, and it does seem to be that. Yeah. The scholars also think that Philodemus was the author of the scroll because he was the philosopher in residence at the library at the time of the writing. So this is kind of like his own sort of like, what is pleasure? And he's also throwing shade at other people too. Pretty much similarly to um, what Polybius, you said. Yeah, yeah. He, he basically is like shading other people in, in this blog post as well. They're doing um, it wrong. So for more on the contest and the results, you can visit the Vesuvius Challenge at scrollprize.org. And the actual um, ink detection software that was created to read this is basically like free to use for everyone now. Um, so it's going to be great for archaeology and great for history. That's amazing, Carrie. That's uh, one of the most genuinely valuable pieces of information we've shared in this segment. Yeah. So uh, congratulations to the super team. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see what this means for other finds that were thought lost to history because, you know, it would be too damaging to try and open them or decipher them. Oh, what an episode. Even our news is 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers. You are our spooky family, and your names are Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, 
Anna, Delaney, and Sue. Thank you all. We love you very, very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.